The Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Would you like to access bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash bones and bobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude and entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group. Ooh, fancy. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello, morbid makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, merrily morbid, marvelously misanthropic host. I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast. Hi, I'm Natalie from Uber Dark Designs, an official murderino maker. Huzzah! Yay! So how you doing? I'm alright. My uh, landlord seems to have picked this moment to use power tools below my kitchen, so that's fun. That is fun. We have... Mm-hmm. I have traffic next to me with an occasional Amish buggy going by, which is always fun times. As long as the Amish buggy is real and <laughs> not just heard. Right. I suppose I should. I bet that happens a lot. I, I'm, I'm willing to There's just not a horse out there. Yeah. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, so how are you? I'm good. I have some new headphones going on this week because we had mystery occur on Friday. Like Friday, oh. yeah, it was just noisy and I was trying to get something done and I went to put my headphones on and they were completely severed. Like not cat chewed on it because my cats will chew on the uh, my charger cords every once in a while, but not like hunker down and make a meal out of them. And it was sure. neither. My children are too old to pull that shit. Right. Theoretically. Um, and they're like, yeah, no. Well, unless there's a good reason. Right. And there clearly wasn't. <laughs> right. Like, really? That's the, that's the hill you want to die on is my headphones. Uh, and we just got puppy, but puppy is with human at all time and not, I mean, cause puppy. Right. Cause puppy is a puppy. Puppy's l- we got her when she was two months and one day old. So she's giant ball of fluff sweetest and she's also super chill so she's not like chew everything up run around like a maniac i mean so i could picture the cats doing it in detest but they they're they're okay with the cat like ron swanson's super chill with the cat he's like whatever you do your thing i'll do mine if you're on my mom i'm gonna stare at you till you get off um the other Fair one enough. yeah so, which is pretty much how I expected him to be. The other one is like, mm, she's real cautious and she'll get close. She won't actually, um, like, engage with him. So, All right. she'll, like, peek up or she'll inch closer. But she's, so she just kind of keeps her distance and she's kind of feeling it out. So, 
So well, nothing. And a cat wouldn't bite through like a scissors cut. No, no. Like, and that's not how cat mouths work. No, and also like cats usually they they like shit in your shoe. Like they like it's not like they're gonna be like. Yeah, or pee on your bed. Right, like, like, I'm going to chew through your headphones so you can't do your podcast. Uh, so I just rush-ordered some new ones. and um, But it still remains a mystery. I mean, I'll have to, I'll, I'll enclose it. I'll take a photo of them, um, and we'll add it into the show notes. But it is literally, there's no chew mucks around it. It's just cut straight through. Yeah, I you know, I can't remember if we have just personally discussed this or if we have actually talked about it on the podcast but there's definitely uh, a ghost of some sort in, in Natalie's area and it's mischievous it uh, when we're trying to record like very very mischievous which is I mean and of course that's exactly where my head went because I'm like yeah. really you're that upset like you're gonna and I mean if that thing's got blades <laughs> right I'm really sorry. I'll give you a hug. I don't know what you want from me. Uh, maybe you just weren't talking yeah. about it enough, and it was like, now you will. <laughs> maybe he's jealous of the puppy. Oh, it's possible. It's possible. Mm. I know the cats were chasing <laughs> around a light of some sort last night that I could not see, but they clearly could. So that was fun. <laughs> like, have fun. I'm just going to go back to bed. <laughs> Bye. I mean, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's exciting. It is, it is. So, and actually, you know, it's kind of cool because the headphones that came with my microphone, um, I don't even know, remember what brand they were, but my replacement are local. They're Koss headphones that are made in Milwaukee, so I'm very excited about that, Kiss. Well, that's good. Local, and once upon a time, I worked for the ad agency that used to do these giant billboards for them, so. So, yay, huh. I got to support a little local, a little local action there, but. I'm going to keep an eye on these. Well, yeah. I, hmm. All right. Now I want to see it, and I want to dust for fingerprints. Right. I can tell you how to dust for fingerprints. Ooh. Do you have, uh, like, facial powder? I do. We also have uh, powder from an incense burner. Like dust. Mm. Well, after the podcast recording, let's uh, have a look. <laughs> oh my goodness um i once did it with um taylor's chalk nice because i was confident that i hadn't been touching my glasses but there kept being a thumbprint in the middle of my glasses mm. no it was mine it was definitely <laughs> mine it is yep amazing to me how dirty my glasses get and i'm like i don't remember touching them at all like i don't no no, glasses, man. They're a problem. They are, but I will never get Lasix. I will never get the eye surgery thing. It, yeah. It frightens me. I just, I would yeah. rather wear glasses. Yeah. No, I just listened to the, uh, or I've been listening to the last podcast on the left, um, episodes about lobotomies, <laughs> which I think must be, I think it's their Patreon um, only episodes. But no. I feel very no about transorbital lobotomies. Uh, that's ironic because in our Patreon episode, which we'll be recording later, I actually mention an unknown lobotomy. Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. 
I mean, there are lots of problems with, right. with right. lobotomies broadly. But <laughs> like, just right. lobotomies are more problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Mystery lobotomies are interesting. Although you used to get free sunglasses with them because they gave you two black eyes. Right. Oh, I've seen. I've seen that. Nope. Nope, nope, nope. Glasses for life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, now that we've um, gone down that <laughs> particular road, uh, Ooh. maybe we should say hi to our new patrons we or something. We should. Uh, we would like to take a quick little break to thank all of our fantastic Curiosity Shop members over on Patreon and give a totally normal and not at all creepy welcome to our newest member, Laura Heck. Hi, Laura. You're the best. And to all of our Patreon supporters, we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards in the woods with you. Absolutely. That's right. That's how we roll. All right. So before we get started, I'm going to throw up a little content warning here. So we're going to be talking about mummies today and specifically Egyptian mummies, um, which I want to clarify because there are many other cultures that also mummified their human remains or remains of animals. Um, but I also want to say that the vast majority of the things that we're going to be talking about are Europeans, white Europeans, desecrating graves and bodies of people in Northern Africa. And so, there's a lot of problematic nonsense and a lot of racist nonsense that went on during this time period. And so I just want to give you a heads up that if that's going to be upsetting to hear about that history right now, that this might be an episode that you'll want to skip. And we totally understand that. Yep. And we're going to try to be very respectful because we do know, I mean, we are a, we are a comedy-ish podcast, but we also do know that sometimes, or quite often, we are talking about the remains of real people that were treated with significant disrespect by other cultures, specifically our white European ancestors. Absolutely. So, that is your warning. Thank you. <laughs> so, I'm going to start out by talking about just mummification and uh, Egyptians. And Which is a really cool process. It, you know, I had a general understanding of, you know, mummies and mummification and stuff, but I seriously have developed such a deep appreciation, respect, and love for the Egyptians um, mm -hmm. that, yeah, it just, it's amazing. So the Egyptians knew that their, the life they had on Earth was going to be, like, of limited duration. Uh, most Egyptians died by the time sure. they were, like, 40. So they wanted to have a better afterlife. And what you see in tombs is a really 
careful preparation for eternity so that everyone could pretty much have a good time. And yeah, while not everyone was mummified, everyone's afterlife was projected to be better than their earth life. So, mm-hmm. and many were mummified, right. even non-nobility. So we're talking about a culture that believed that no matter what your station was in life, that in afterlife you deserved more. And yes, mummification did indeed vary depending on whether you were royal or non-royal. If you were non-royal, mm-hmm. you would have all the best things available in Egypt that you lived in, but then none of the nastiness. If you were poor, you would come back much wealthier. For kings, though, while, oh. while they could enjoy all the best food and drink and entertainment, they also became one with the gods. So they believed that they would sail... Like you do. Right. They would sail across the sky with the sun god, Ray, fighting against the powers Mm -hmm. of evil and darkness, trying to make the world safe for mankind and making sure that Egypt continued on forever. Like, seriously, I want to hug them all right now. Like, just all of that is so amazing. So... I thought it was the River Styx. There is... Well, there's... There is the... um, We'll get into a little bit of how 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 the crossing into the afterlife um, was. Believed. Oh, okay. Um, so entirely separate. Right. Thing. Um, so during the first. Oh, that's cool. I've never heard of that. Right. So during the first dynasty of Egypt, uh, which we're talking like twenty nine twenty to twenty nine hundred BC, uh, you actually have servant burials. Uh, this was done only done for the kings. Some of the chosen servants Ooh. were put to death and buried around the king's right. tomb. Uh, and these people were supposed to be very privileged. It was an honor because then they would have a super duper cool afterlife with the king and the sun god. Um, after the first dynasty, they were like, mm, hmm. maybe not kill off the people. Um, so they would then instead have images or statues of their servants or write down the names of the people who are going to join them in the afterlife. So kudos. Oh, interesting. For... So they would catch up later. Right. So kudos for making a 180 on that fairly quickly. It didn't take too long, huh. historically speaking, for them to, to figure that out. So according right. to the Egyptians' religion, when you died, your soul continued. But unlike in a lot of modern religions, your soul was not just a formless thing. It could actually, like, animate a statue of the dead person or, much better, the actual body of the dead person. And that's why mummification took place, so that the body would be preserved to host the soul. So people always talk about the secret of mummification. And in a way, it kind of it's kind of secret because the Egyptians never really left behind an instructional manual, like telling the step by step method of how you go about embalming somebody. But some of what we know about how people and animals, animals, a lot of animals, uh, were mummified comes from fifth so century BC historian um, Herodotus, which uh, wrote mm-hmm. in detail about mummification. So, and of course, you can actually just you can look, you can learn a lot by looking at the mummies themselves, and by doing chemical analysis on the resins and other materials that were used in the process. It's yeah, I think there are probably. If I remember correctly, paintings also that depict right. At least it's some pretty known. I mean, throughout the practice, it's pretty easy to um, to figure out. So, in the the process yeah. of mummification took place um, over three thousand years, 
Um, and it's estimated that 70 million mummies were made in that time. However, that's seeming pretty low, especially if you take into account animal mummies, because there have been several hundred thousand animal mummies found even in one cemetery. So that's just, that's, that's not even human. Oh, okay. So a lot of mummies were made. Uh, and yeah, I guess I don't know what the population of the area would have been at that time. Right? But that's a lot of mummies. Of mummies. Um, and, and, uh, and when you, it's even more amazing when you look at the, the entire process and how long it takes mm-hmm. to, to mummify someone. So the tools that were used for, like, during various stages of the embalming process were a round bold spoon, an oval bold spoon, a scalpel, a needle, a knife, and a wooden instrument with a padded end and a hook. Like, that's it. Um, other ingredients that are super... <laughs> yeah. The hook is where you're like, oh, God, no. Um, so... I know what happens. So there. other ingredients that are involved in this are... Like, the most important ingredient when it comes to the embalming is natron. So natron is a naturally occurring mixture of sodium carbonate decahydrate, which is a kind of soda ash and around and around 17% sodium bicarbonate, which is, you know, baking soda. So and then there's like small quantities of sodium chloride and sodium sulfate found. So natron deposits were actually found in saline lake beds that arose in arid environments. So and in modern Mm -hmm. mineralogy, the term natron just comes has become to mean the hydrated soda ash. That makes up most of historical salt. Okay. Um, and then they also used palm wine, which contained about 14% alpha alcohol. Um, right? Well. I remember my seventh grade science teacher will never forget how to know whether it was, a, it was the alcohol you could drink or the alcohol you can't. And he's like, you can have a drink with Aunt Ethel, but don't try it with methyl. So ethyl alcohol, 14%. Uh, they also then use pitched pitch resin and pine oil, and then finally the second, probably second most important, was linen. Lots and lots and lots of linen. So right. much linen, which was hand woven. I would just like it's, to. Can can you imagine hand weaving that to have it ripped in right? strips? Well, and then. To, oh. I mean, I'm sure right. it was and an honor. all of the yards per person to make it. times roughly 70 million bodies, give or take in size. Uh, That's so right. much linen. <laughs> so when it comes to the process, the chief embalmer was a priest. And the priest would wear the mask of Anubis. Anubis was the jackal-headed god of dead. Uh, and he was closely associated with mummification and embalming. So that's why the priests wore the mask. Uh, the body was first cleansed with palm wine and water from the sacred lake or the river Nile to purify it. So they'd wash down the entire outer body. The embalmers first mm-hmm. had to remove the moist parts of the body, which would rot. The brain was the first yep. to go. And it was removed through the nostril with the hook and thrown, a- and thrown uh. away because it was believed to not be important. In fact... Many Egyptians literally thought that the only reason your brain existed was to create snot, which I find adorable. Mm. <laughs> adorable and weird. So, 
Yeah. Huh. And the brains are like, yeah, we don't need them. Uh, so well, out the brains went. Um, and then. I mean, if all you're seeing of brains is it coming right? out of a nose, I could see it makes sense. that argument. Uh, so the yeah. internal organs were then removed through a cut to the left side of the body down by the stomach. The lungs, liver, stomach, and intestif- mm-hmm. intestines were actually mummified separately and placed in special containers called canopic jars. Right. Um, which we'll get to at the end of this. Um, the heart was left in the mummy in order to be weighed against the feather of truth and justice in the afterlife by the god Anubis. If the deceased had done bad things, then their hmm. heart would be heavy and they would not be allowed in the afterlife. Instead, Amit, who was part crocodile, lion, and hippo- hip- hippopotamus, would devour them. Only if the heart weighed the same as the feather could oh. the deceased person go into the afterlife. Um, so I find it super interesting that they, they believe that that heart was like the the original vessel that your soul came in, essentially. Um so out of everything, that was the thing that was put back in. And then after everything was pulled out, they would again rinse the inside of the body now with the palm wine and spices and lotions and oils. The body would then be placed on a tilted slab and packed, like covered with natron for like 40 days. So what the natron did was pull, it dissolved all the body fats inside and out and it would absorb all the moisture. So essentially... They're salting them to preserve them um, and preventing the decay by getting all that moisture up in the natron. Uh, I mean, that is a really solid way of preventing it is, bacterial it, it growth. It kills all the bacteria. Right. We still do it. Um, and it's. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's not with humans. That, and they speaking, saved. So the tilted but. slab, they actually saved everything that drained off and it was still mummified with the person. Like you didn't lose anything. So, um, and it's cool. pretty much that. No adipose right? for you. <laughs> so that, that crust on them yeah. <clears throat> is pretty much what turned brown and gives that color a lot. Um, so, and then linen. So after 40 days, oh. linen was then used to pad out the cavities and the body was treated again with herbs and oils and, um, and then they pack it again and let her rest for like another 30 days. So after that, so 70 days, when it hit the 70 days. Oh, I should mention too that um, any, and this again, I find to be amazing. If the person was missing a body part, um, they would recreate it out of wood so that you're, you're, you would have your whole body back in your afterlife. So while they were packing it oh. then again, um, they would make sure that, you know, anything before they began the wrapping process, the next part of this, they would make sure that the body was whole then. So, right? That's fascinating. So it, it just is the ultimate in love and care. I mean, I cannot. Yeah, it's it is. so It thoughtful. really is. So then they would take the eye of Horus and position it over the um, abdominal slit. And then the body would be blessed. Um, and then they would take hundreds of yards in linen and they would fingers and toes would be wrapped separately and individual and they would wrap the body and charms were arranged inside of the layers to protect the body. Priests would write on the linen layers and recite ritual prayers as, um, as they were wrapping. And it took 15 days for all of the spells and the rituals performed to ensure a safe passage to the afterlife. So 
Wow. I didn't yeah, know there so was writing. So then after it was all bound, resin was applied to hold it all together. And then all of the wrappings were then held together by a binding shroud. And a portrait mask was placed right. over the mummy's head so that the dead person's soul would recognize its body. Which again, well, so of course, horribly endearing. So eventually, the Book of Dead, which contained hmm. 200 spells and instructions for reaching eternal life, the canopic jars that contained the organs mm-hmm. we mentioned before, and any belongings that they wanted in the afterlife um, were placed with them in the burial chamber. Now, back to those four mm-hmm. canopic jars. And um, so each had a different stopper or lid um, depicting things. So the uh, Imseti guarded a person's liver. Oh, I listened to 20 pronunciations of this and I just... Kebhesenef? Q-E-B-H-E-S-N-E-U-F. A falcon... That's how I would say that. So he was a falcon that watched over the intestines. Mm -hmm. Happy was a baboon that protected the lungs. And Dalmatef was a jackal that looked after the stomach. These were the four sons of Horus. And Horus was the ancient Egyptian god of the sky and the protector of the pharaoh. So that is mummification. Which is cussing amazing. Thought I knew a lot about mummies, and now I feel like I know significantly more about the why. I knew that. Yeah, the why is the thing that. But the why and is really touching. Time and the fact that they they did this for the fact they did this for cats. The fact they did this for people that were poor. Just now, if I'm ever in a position where a mummy comes running after me, I'll just be like. Come into my arms, let me hug you. <laughs> because I will no longer be scared of them. Because it's like, yes, just <laughs> someone cared what? so deeply for you. Like, and, and that would then just that whole to take 70 days to prepare the body, another 15 to pray and ritualize. To take, we're talking almost three months to lay somebody to rest in that fashion. Yep. That has to be the most peaceful rest then. I mean, if you if you think about it, you know? Well, <laughs> until, until the fucking Europeans, the Europeans came. <laughs> <Okay. clears throat> yes, but I, I mean, considering the expected lifespan, that three months of laying someone to rest is even more right. significant. And they were just... So I think it's funny that, you know, they thought the brain just did snot. Which I guess makes sense. But then to to have the presence to understand how fleeting one life was. And to have that much respect. And I don't want to say come up with. But to have that huge set of elaborate beliefs in their religion that follow everything. I mean, it's so... When you take each part... And then break it down even further by who, you know, who who each of the gods were and, and how they came. I I seriously want, I actually looked up like a class on Egyptian culture because I was so like, I want to know even more. And, and then to also know how important the heart was at such a 
an ancient, ancient time is amazing to mm-hmm. me. No, I... It's... It's very interesting to look at how other cultures um, accepted mortality in a way that current Western culture simply does not. Um, I mean, I am part of the death positive movement, and so I think about that a lot. I think it's um, down to like just greed and, and it's like we want to just be alive forever to stockpile all this shit and I don't know it just yeah I mean what an honor it would be to care for a loved one I mean this is not quite the same but I happened to be home in Michigan when my mom uh, lost a beloved cat who had Hmm. an enlarged heart and it was really traumatic Hmm. for her and so she asked if I would clean the body before burial and it was it was cold outside and so which was I guess a good thing for the body of of the cat Um, so I went out with, you know, water and a cloth and cleaned by hand the entire body and wrapped, um, his name was Frankie, and wrapped him up in a blanket and got him ready to be laid to rest. And, oh, it was sad. And I'm going to cry about it. But it was also such an honor to do it and I just, I feel like we've lost I touch agree. with some of that. I, and, and yeah, but I, when my Zen passed away, um, I cleaned him and I, I buried him on top of the little pillow that they gave me in the hospital because I had a C-section. So you'd hold the pillow across your sutures mm-hmm. when you coughed so you didn't pop them open. But he, I arranged him on top of there and everything. Oh. <laughs> it was just... But yeah, the care that was took, you know, that we take to, we should show that same care. It just, so weird side note story. Um, Once upon a time, I worked in healthcare as a healthcare administrator. And I oversaw a lot of uh, residential facilities and um, primarily for elderly people. And whenever I was filling in as an administrator for one or was administrator over one, um, when somebody passed away, which happened pretty frequently, um, I was a huge advocate for hospice care to keep them in the building. And, but I had this thing where I had to, when they came, whenever the person passed away, I didn't need to be there, but I would get the call. I would go in there and I would make sure that I was present when the, whatever funeral home was, was, was taking care of them would come. And I was the person to zip up with the bag. Like that was my final thing. Like I had this thing where I needed to see them all the way through to that point. And then once they were in the bag and on the gurney and I zipped it up, that was me seeing it all the way through because it was the most that I could. Obviously I'm not, you know, I don't work in a, in a funeral home, so I don't have the knowledge to see it further. Yeah. But I had this thing that it was just my response, my inner responsibility, which I, I know many people are like, you are just really weird. And I'm like, you can think I'm weird, but to me it's just, it's respect. It was just this one thing that I felt like I had to do to see it all the way, th- to see them all the way through as far as possible on my end. 
oh yeah, I and I think I would feel that way too, and I think that is lovely. And like, I feel like we're taught right now to find that sort of thing to be, you know, creepy and off-putting, but. I think it's such a it loving is. move. I mean, that's a human being like, that you cared about, that other people cared about, that had yeah. a life. Like, at the very least you can do is, you know? So I'm, I'm with you in death positivity. Yeah. And, and really, and, you know, I think looking around, maybe if we did take death, did take a different look on death, we would also then take a different look at living and value people's lives a little bit more. Yeah. Specifically, once again, no, I, people of darker skin. Yes, that is, uh, if, if we haven't made it clear, Black no. Lives Matter. Absolutely. And um, that is a really important thing, especially if you're a white person listening, to take some time to think about. Yes. Um, so... Now that we've talked about all of the love and care and compassion that went into mummifying human and animal remains, we're now going to talk about asshole European Victorians. Who, um, oh yes, who thought it was a really good idea to throw mummy unwrapping parties. Mm-mm. Yeah, that's right. So, there are many problematic aspects to every single part of basically this entire subject. So, it's also extremely morbidly fascinating. Yes. But it is very, very much disrespectful and dehumanizing as well and there is an argument to be made for the science at the time before there were ways to say x-ray and do less invasive explorations but also i don't know maybe leave those people buried where they were buried but seriously, Victorian England, as it turns out, did not ask me. So, <laughs> all right. So, mummy unwrapping parties happened during the height of what is called Egyptomania, which is every bit as problematic as you think it is. Oh, my goodness. Yes, which encompassed sort of an obsession of. Egyptian culture, decorations, this is when a lot of, like, Egyptian-inspired clothing and decor would happen. It would also happen again in, like, the 20s. Um, it sounds like a, the name of a Scooby-Doo episode. Egyptomania, yeah. <laughs> Just... or, or, like, an illness. Um, maybe that you get from unwrapping a mummy. If only. Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, let's, at some point we may have to explore curses. Yes. Um, that is not part of this because (laughs) too much. 
Um, but we'll, we'll talk about that at some point. So, um, Egyptomania is sort of defined as the renewed interest of Europeans in ancient Egypt during the 19th century. And I didn't know this, but it, it seems to be as a direct result of Napoleon's Egyptian campaign. Um, in like 1798 to 1801 and in particular um, that campaign was what kicked off the extensive scientific study of ancient Egyptian remains and culture which is not necessarily what I would have expected from a campaign that was largely to protect trade interests and weaken Britain's trade power with India. And also, it ended in defeat for Napoleon. But, you know, okay, fine. Um, So, as a result of this, several things happened. Um, like I said, scientific study came into vogue, and also it had an aesthetic culture, like that scientific study had, um, an aesthetic impact on literature, art, and architecture. Um, it also played a role in early discussions about race and gender and identity, but not in the way you want it to. Oh, no, of course not. No, no, but we'll get there. Um, so because of this renewed interest in ancient Egypt at the time that it happened... Um, Egypt has had a pretty significant impact on, I guess, the cultural imagination of pretty much all Western cultures. And so, another strange thing that Napoleon's failed campaign would do, in addition to setting off scientific study, was... Uh, I guess his expedition led to the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, which basically created the scientific field of Egyptology. So, Hmm. so there we go. So it's more than just a learning program? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) indeed, indeed. It's more than just languages? Yes, it's, um, it's how... We learned how to read many ancient languages. And actually, we should, like, I say that with sarcasm, but we really should talk about the Rosetta Stone at some point and why it's so important. Because it's a thing somebody made at a time period when so many languages and cultures were intersecting, and it's fascinating. But, the Rosetta Stone aside... Mummy unwrappings. Um, 
were also part of this Egyptomania that was sweeping England, but also everywhere else, including America, um, in the 19th century. And a quote from French aristocrat and Trappist monk, Abbot Ferdinand <laughs> de Garam, from 1833, says, <laughs> It would hardly be respect... Sorry. It would hardly be... I can't even say it because I'm so stuck on Trappist monk <laughs> Abbot. Right. Um, uh, okay, I'm going to get my shit together. Um, <laughs> it would be hardly respectable on one's return from Egypt to present oneself without a mummy in one hand and a crocodile in the other. I have several questions. What? This is a monk? A um, an aristocrat and Trappist monk abbot. I I I got nothing. I would like to question his credentials. Uh, I I'm sure you could Google him. I my, my question was more focused on: Is the crocodile alive? Right. I, I, and I don't know. I don't know what and, the answer is. And why crocodile? Uh, have you not heard the Bangles song? <laughs> See, also, problematic representations of Egypt yes. and Western culture. So many. So many. So many. Um, okay, so now that we have that question laid at our feet... Let's move over to Thomas Pettigrew, who was a surgeon focused on antiquarian interests, like you do, um, who published History of Egyptian Mummies in 1834. And while he wasn't the first person to unwrap a mummy for a public audience... On January 15th of 1834, at the Royal College of Surgeons in London, he turned the idea of unwrapping into part fascinating sort of macabre science lecture and part performance art. Which, he's a surgeon and it's at a medical facility, so that... I can see, yeah. see how that would also then seem really cool. He was also, I, yeah, he was also a raging racist who apparently Ugh. was unwrapping mummies to take cranial measurements to prove that ancient Egyptians were actually Caucasian. Oh, the caucasity of him. Yes. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, heaven uh. forbid ancient Egyptians be black or brown people. I'm kind of unclear what, I, how you would go to Egypt at that time and see Egyptian people living their lives and be like, oh yeah, there's white people buried here. Yeah, um, I know. 
So, um, there's not, uh, as it turns out. But also, ancient Egypt plus science plus the macabre plus being a little bit naughty for science was basically catnip to Victorians. Yeah. Yes, and so... This happened quite often. It drew big crowds. And there didn't seem to be a whole lot of thought about the humanity that they were dealing with. Um, Which is a thing repeated over and over again. Just look at museums in the West. Mm, I mean... And museums everywhere, but the West is particularly good at taking things from other places that they shouldn't be taking and not giving them back. So, um, desecrating corpses wasn't just for the British. Okay. Yep, the French were also partaking in some disrespect of their own. And plenty of disrespect to go oh, around. Oh, oh, the, <laughs> there was a lot. Um, so, French author of The Romance of the Mummy and Egypt, Theophile <laughs> Gautier, who... Theophile? Like, really? <laughs> uh, I, maybe that's not how it's Theos? pronounced. <laughs> but, um, anyway described an unrolling in 1857 as the mummy was being unwrapped um, and points out the funerary jewels that were revealed like you talked about that were supposed to Mm -hmm. be protective and also the pressed flowers under the woman's armpits um, that were perfectly reserved but without color Um, and also noticed a tiny, tiny hawk that was in the necklace that she was wearing and thought that it would make a lovely watch charm because, of course, it would. Um, and I guess you could find these sort of funerary jewels and protection items basically just chilling at curiosity shops pretty much everywhere at the time. However, this French author does seem to have an awareness of the humanity of this person in a way that isn't often represented in the research that I've found Um, and he said that she quote walked in the sunshine lived and loved 500 years before Moses 2000 years before Jesus Christ Hmm. and so like he seemed to while participating in this desecration and being like, oh, that's cute, it would make a good watch charm, also seemed to get that this this woman was alive at some point. 
and was a person. Makes it better or worse, you know? I'm not sure. Other artifacts were also used inappropriately by Egypt-obsessed Europeans. Hmm. A very specific example of this is the Duke of Hamilton, who asked our raging racist Pettigrew to mummify him upon his death, which he did. And um, the Duke was interred in a sarcophagus of an unnamed, unidentified princess. Um, The sarcophagus he had bought in France with the not-so-believable intention of donating it to the British Museum. And as far as I can tell, he is still interred in this sarcophagus. Mummified. I hope he is cursed as fuck. <laughs> um, I would think so. I hope his afterlife is a shit show. Because <laughs> then, seriously. I, and I don't know what happened to the body that inhabited said sarcophagus. I, I'm, I don't know. Because there were just so many mummies that we're having things happen. So, (laughs) rich tourists also got in on the whole mummy unwrapping and corpse desecration action. Because, apparently, if you didn't return from Egypt with a mummy, did you really even go to Egypt? Right? Yeah. Mummy and a crocodile, motherfuckers. Right? <laughs> um, still don't know if it's alive. Uh, I, hmm, I hope that it was and that it ate your arm. Yes. Mm, anyway, so if you did go to Egypt and you brought back your mummy, you would immediately, <clears throat> excuse me, um, s- decide to hold an unwrapping party and send out invitations. The main event would usually happen, apparently, after dinner and copious amounts of drinking. Jeez. Um, and I hope they did drink a lot because mummies don't smell very good. They're, they're corpses. S- yeah. Um... So, it should, I guess, be mentioned that some scholars insist that these parties didn't actually happen outside an academic setting, but my money is on Victorians being that creepy and that racist. For sure. So... I am a thousand percent on board with that. Yeah. Um... And History.com says that royalty threw them quite often... But History.com is also uh, the people who say aliens. So... I I bet you that aristocratic Trappist monk threw one. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he definitely was at one. I don't think he was throwing it, though. Um, So, yeah. Um, So I'd just like to throw in a couple fun facts about mummies. That 
sort of ties into your how they were created um, because everything else about that is just so awful but also fascinating like I understand why you would do it I also understand why it's deeply disrespectful and wrong and like so, the thing that I find interesting is that he was so uh, pedig- pedigree, yep. right? Was so um, hell bent on proving they were Caucasian. So, yeah, and it wasn't just they, him. A lot of people really want the ancient Egyptians to have been white people. So they. So they. So they can have like credit for the pyramids and oh yeah that like makes sense, all of like but they're also being racist but they're also you know like so they well they're really impressed with the culture and the science absolutely of the day yes. and they want them very badly to be white. But I have uh, some bad news for them about math. <laughs> and also letters. Or not letters, yeah. numbers. Um, that, that was, um, you know, Arabic numbers. And a university was invented by a brown woman. Sorry guys yep yep because she was real good at math anyway so now that we're uh we have wrinkled our nose and um flipped off our european predecessors for being awful but also doing things we can't look away from Um, here's a fun fact about Egyptian mummies. The reason why you might come home with a mummy in one hand and a crocodile in the other is that mummies only weighed about five pounds after they were all done being desecrated. Or desiccated. Also desecrated. Um, wow. desiccated is That's what less than a gallon of milk. Huh. I don't know. I don't drink milk. Gallon of milk or water weighs yeah. eight pounds. Good to know. Just in case. I don't know where that is stuck in my brain, but it's one of those things. I have learned a thing. Yeah. Um, so, mouths of mummies were left open in a ceremony... Um, that was specifically, like, there was a tool to open the mouth and there was a ceremony that went along with it, um, specifically so the deceased would be able to eat, drink, breathe, and speak in the afterlife, because that was an important thing to be able to do. So mummy mouths are open. Good to know. Yeah. Um. So thoughtful. I mean... Everything about making mummies is extremely thoughtful, except for maybe the part about killing your animals and servants, which 
Yeah. It's yeah. thoughtful in a way. <sighs> I don't know. It's like they meant well, and then they were like, "Oh shit, maybe not." And <laughs> it's just right. If their names it's down. voluntary, <laughs> that's a very different thing. But these were also servants, so even voluntary things aren't voluntary. Right. We're not going to dig into that because that would take a long time. Um, and fun fact three, which you also touched upon, was mummification wasn't just for nobility. Um, for thousands of years, all classes of Egyptians were mummified. Or could have been mummified. Which I think is pretty amazing. Yeah, so um, that is the real sketchy history of mummy unwrapping parties god yeah there were just so, so many mummies there there are there are um yeah there were and i mean are still yeah. <laughs> hopefully you know the europeans didn't use you know get to all of them um so not quite <laughs> right so i guess uh they were kind of Sourceful with the mummies while they were fully disrespecting and desecrating the shit out of them. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, you know what? Maybe I should go next because sure. mine turns into yours. Yeah. Mine okay. is what happens after yours. Yes. <laughs> or wait, the other way around. Yours is what yes. happens after mine. All right. <clears throat> I uh, forgot about that. Okay. So, now that we've talked about um, creepy and inappropriate things Victorians did to desecrate mummified bodies, let's knock it back a few centuries. So, <laughs> mummies, in addition to being entertainment for the wealthy and scientifically minded, were also used in... The preparation of medications. Yes, that's right. Mummy medicines. Like actual, like, preparation of, so, no. Uh. No. <laughs> that's not a good thing. Uh, it, no, it, like, actual, wow. actual preparation. So, I'm going to read you a short list of ailments that mummy was supposed to treat. Powdered mummy. <laughs> Powdered mummy. Yep. That's, did we snort the line of mummy? No, we did took we... it internally. Um, so internally, I assume nice we mummy tonic. swallowed it. Oh, well, there, there's oh, several um, oh, ways that that was prepared. But it was apparently used to treat epilepsy, vertigo, and palsy. My mother has vertigo. And I think that, that, that mummies would not help her very much. We have been to the Museum of uh, Natural History many times, and not once has being in the mummy area been helpful. Um, so, also, powdered mummy might be placed externally on wounds. <laughs> no! <laughs> Let's take dead skin and stuff and just pack an open wound 
Nothing can go wrong with that. Nothing. Um, tinctures and extracts and treacles and elixirs of mummy could counteract poison, prevent the plague, and prevent all manners of infection. Wow. Balsam of mummy could restore wasted limbs, consumptions, hectics, which I meant to look up. I do not know what a hectic is. Is that like ghosts in your blood? Uh, Probably. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Ulcers. And corruptions. Hold on, let's let's Clear, let's find clearly out. Clearly, didn't help with corruption because <laughs> they were corrupted as fuck. So apparently, that didn't. Work. Yeah, I, I'm gonna see if I can find out what a hectic is. Right. Oh, a fever. A fe- oh, a fever or a flush. So okay, yep, there we are. Um, that seems a quite the name for yeah. a fever. <laughs> and mummy. Application method unspecified can also dissolve coagulated blood, relieve cough, relieve pain in the spleen. Um, That's very specific. Yes, treat flatulency. And (laughs) this might be my favorite thing that mummies do, especially given today's Supreme Court decision. Um... Mummy was used to treat delayed menstruation. So that's right, kids. Mummy abortives. What? Yeah. I mean, that's the only thing that old-timey medicine books referred to when they said delayed menstruation. So, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and say that at some point... Doctors who thought you had ghosts in your blood also thought that ingesting mummy could cause an abortion. Which, I don't know. If you Maybe it does. <laughs> if you don't want to be a mummy, take some mummy. Oh, God, that's terrible. And also it's hilarious. It's horrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. I couldn't not. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you can actually find the recipes for all of the things, all of the preparations I just listed, linked in the show notes. So, you know, have fun oh. with that. Oh, I have a look at that. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. look at them. Um, none of it looked like a good idea to me, but. None of it sounds like even a remotely. No. The treacle cracks me up because I've watched a lot of great British baking Me show. too. <laughs> and I'm like, what? No. I, well, and I mean. It will soon become clear why treacle makes sense. Okay. Okay. So, I'm going to tell you how that happened. All right. Tell me story. All right. So, a super fun cure-all in ancient medicine and also aphrodisiac, because what wasn't, um, was mamiya. And (sighs) that is um, an... Arabic word that is a resinous bitumen. Yeah. And so a resinous bitumen is a naturally occurring sticky black resinous substance that was either viscous, uh, so treacle, um, 
or mm. semi-solid, and it's naturally occurring. It's also called asphalt. Ah, I yep. don't think I realized before today that, I mean, I know how asphalt is made, but I didn't think, I don't think I knew that it was a naturally occurring substance also. Like, I knew you could make it happen and how. But it also um, really explains why it sticks to your shoes. It it does indeed. All right. So, um, note that this doesn't involve bodies. It's just an Arabic word for Ah. that stuff. Okay. That's good. Yeah. Ish. And so, (laughs) yeah. Uh, But then medieval Latin got involved. Oh, boy. And the word mamia came to mean both a bituminous, bituminous, there we go, medicine from Persia, and inaccurately, mummy. Which seems like a bad idea to me. It does, but it also... Yeah, explains yeah explains something that I will talk about next. Yeah, it it does, doesn't it? Um, it does. Yes. So the non-body related substance was applied topically to wounds and fractures by Persians, and it was also taken internally for stomach ulcers and tuberculosis. And it was a naturally occurring substance, as I said, that was regarded Mm -hmm. as effective by Persians and Greeks. And then, thanks to the Crusades, so here we come with the white men, Um, which is a whole other problematic can of worms. Um, Europeans experienced this particular drug and application for themselves firsthand. And so, because of that, Mamiya was in widespread use in Europe from the 12th to 17th centuries. And a substance called that didn't go away altogether until the 1900s. But... Supplies of the natural bitumen ran short around the 12th century, and because medieval Latin had gotten involved, what should have been a medication expanded to include actual mummies. Mm. Yeah, that, that's because of a translation issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All so right. many things have... Yeah. Gotten screwed up based on translation. Oh, so many. So it turns out you could scrape something black and resinous out of embalmed Egyptian mummies. And why would you do that? One might wonder. Uh, Because it was thought that the aforementioned medicinal bitumen had been used in the embalming practice. It wasn't. But dark and sticky. I, I'm 
somewhat i imagine that <laughs> Dark, the intersection boring. of mistranslation and black goo happened um so the substance that they were scraping out of embalmed egyptian mummies was not in fact mummia as had been previously known and used in medication it was actually exudate which is the stuff that oozes through pores or from wounds yeah like you know on people so that's what that was um plants also have exudates but that's not as fun so we'll just leave that be (laughs) uh so along the way because this new type of mumia was now equated as the same thing as the previous completely unrelated substance, um, Egyptian suppliers started substituting this scraped out resinous substance just whole mummies embalmed or desiccated oh okay uh yeah uh when they were shipping them to europe so uh, there was an actual photo of an egyptian mummy dealer that i found that is really quite something yeah yeah Okay, so in the 16th century, Egypt banned the shipment of mummia, like the stuff made out of mummies. And of course, in the grand tradition of European body snatching and grave robbing, apothecaries made their own with fresh corpses. And I'm just guessing that those bodies were snatched. Nobody said so, but... Where else did they come from? Well, I can actually tell you a little bit about where else some of them came from, which was imports of desiccated bodies from North Africa and mummies from the Canary Islands were also imported. But Underground mummy train. Yeah, but sketchy apothecaries were just making their own from, from fresh. You know, like you do. Yeah. Yeah, so that's fun. Um because I one assumes that these other mummies were not being used with the permission of families or with respect to local traditions. So, oh, we're just yeah. we're just going to assume across the board that this was not fine. Um Right. And then the Renaissance happened. So finally, scholars had the good sense to prove that the translation of bituminous mummia to mummy had all been one big silly mistake. Oops. Oops. (laughs) Yep. And then doctors stopped prescribing the body-laced drug, um, which didn't actually work. Uh, <laughs> Imagine that. Yes. Um, 
But Mamiya could still be purchased for medical purposes as late as 1924 when it was still included in the price list for Merck and company. Yeah, that Merck. No. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So. Merck, you've got some explaining to do. So after that, though, mummies, at least powdered mummy, was relegated to painting pots, which you will go into. Um, But because Europeans are real sketchy, I would like to point out that people didn't really stop at just mummies. Many different parts of other people were consumed. And while I was perusing a Smithsonian article that I also linked in the show notes, I came across what might be my favorite quote from this entire thing from Richard Sugg of England's University of Durham, which was, uh, in the context of, medica- of medicine, the question was not, should you eat human flesh? But what sort of flesh should you eat? <laughs> yeah. What kind of cannibalist should you be? Yeah. Exactly. So, um, that's mummies as medicine. Wow. Right. That's so disturbing. Yeah. So, the language thing there helps a bit with me because while, uh, while researching mummy brown, Mm -hmm. uh, which was also referred to as Egyptian brown, or caput mortium, uh, which means dead man's head. <laughs> uh, there is a couple different um, definitions for it. Basically, it's a rich brown pigment somewhere between burnt umber and raw umber. Oh. Uh, which, you know. <laughs> That's very specific. <laughs> right. Uh, and it was one of the favorite colors of the pre-Raphaelites. So, now, a lot of places define it as being made from the flesh of mummies mixed with white pitch and myrrh. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the, and I linked it in the show notes, there is a a man that is in charge of the Harvard University uh, section of the museum that is just pigments. Oh, the rare pigments collection? The rare pigments, right. And he defined it, right, he defined it as the resin and pitch. And that it was not actual. So he didn't say it was actual mummies. So there's discrepancy. But once you look at people not really defining the word correctly, I get it. So mummy brown was available right up to the 20th century from artist color makers. And as early as 1712, an artist supply show, shop rather jokingly called A La Mummy <laughs> opened in Paris selling paints and varnish as well as powdered mummy, incense, and myrrh. And it seems that that five-pound mummy went quite a long way. There was a, a writing in 1915 that reported that a London color man informed him that one Egyptian mummy furnished sufficient materials to satisfy the demands of his customers for 20 years. Wow. Specific, yeah, right, it's a lot of powdered mummy. Uh, specific documented accounts of the use of mummy brown 
is kind of hard to come by, um, which is not surprising because the pigments composition was variable to say the least, depending on what they mixed together, whether they were mixing the actual powdered uh, mummy or if they were mixing just the, basically the Norton that had absorbed all of the, um, the juices or the, uh, and then combined with the resin. So it's kind of, Difficult to determine whether it was used um, without going through, like, the, the process of, like, mass spectrometry. Right, But right, there right. seems to be a general consensus that mummy brown was really commonly used by artists for the 16th century. Um, as a brown pigment, it had good transparency. It could be mixed with oil. It can be used as a watercolor pigment for glazing. It shadows, ironically, flesh tones <laughs> and for shading. <laughs> right. Uh, the pigment achieved its greatest popularity in the mid-18th to 19th centuries, and in 1849 was described as being quite in vogue. Oh. The, Fren <laughs> the French artist Martin Drolling also reputedly used mummy brown mixed with the remains of French kings disinterred from the royal abbey of Saint-Denis in Paris. Oh, like you do. That's a Right, that's a special kind of not so right. Uh, so huh. it is sometimes a, of a wonder that mummy brown continued to be used for four friggin' centuries. Uh, there were a lot of mummies. Kind of, there were. But its death is met with kind of a charming story. Uh -oh. So in her, bio, in, in her biography of the pre-Raphaelite artist, Edward Byrne Jones, his widow Georgina recalls a particularly fateful turning point for the color. The artist Lawrence Alma Tadema and his family were visiting Burne Jones for lunch on a Sunday, a day which she says was remembered by us all as the day of the funeral of a tube of mummy paint. We were sitting <gasps> together for lunch. <laughs> the men talked about different colors that they used. When Mr. Tadema startled us by saying he had lately been invited to go and see a mummy that was in his color man's workshop before it was ground down into paint, Edward scouted, which is scornfully rejected, Oh, the, the idea of pigment having anything to do with a mummy, said the name must only be borrowed to, to describe a particular shade of brown. But when assured that it was actually a compound compounded of real mummy, he left us at once, hastened to the studio, and returned with the only tube he had, insisted on giving our giving it a decent burial there and then. So a hole was oh. bored in the green grass at our feet, and we all watched it put safely in, and the spot was marked by one of the girls planting a daisy root above it. This bizarre but rather touching episode must have really had quite an impact on all those that were present for this lunch, one of which included a teenaged Rudyard Kipling. Oh, interesting. Who was George, Georgina's nephew. And Kipling used to spend every December with Burne Jones at their London home. And here's how he described the mummy episode decades later. He, meaning Burns Jones, descended in a broad daylight with a tube of mummy brown in his hand, saying that he had discovered it was made of dead pharaohs and we must bear it accordingly. So we all went and helped out and helped according to the rights of Mizrim and Memphis, I hope. And to this day, I could drive a spade within a foot of where that tube lies. Hmm. And after that, people, like, word got around of that story and people stopped using it. The modern pigment huh. sold as mummy brown now is a mixture of kaolin, quartz, geophyte, and hematite, 
with the hematite and geothite generally about 60% of the content. Determining the color, they're more the more hematite, the redder the pigment. And then others um, being inert substance, uh, substances that can vary the opacity or the tinting strength. And the color of mummy brown can actually vary now from yellow to red to dark violet. And the latter of which is usually called mummy violet. So that is the story of huh. Mummy Brown and the artist that said, no more. <laughs> I love that. And I love that the first impulse, like, as a human right. was to give these remains a burial. Right. Like, I, I find that to be so refreshing, considering how awful... All of the Europeans that we have talked about today have been. We at least end it on a on a high note. Yes, that that's <laughs> very sweet. It, that oh, right? that makes me happy, and I I feel like I would do the same thing. Right, I would like to think that I would as well. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, yeah, just to have that that instinct. I mean, any impulse is. Yeah based on like the the very deep root of who you are yeah and i mean Um, i'm vegan so i'm fairly (laughs) certain um don't worry i am not a proselytizing vegan i could give a shit what anybody else eats but um yeah but i still feel like that um i guess i've been vegan for like 20 years and so i feel like that knowing about animals like it just grossed me out my grandma had a farm um and i was like oh hey nope um yeah but i yeah it, i just i get it i get why you would do that i also think it's amazing that he could you know to this day still point out where it was buried which i mean is great that must you know? have been a really, I mean, just the entire act of it must have been mm-hmm. left such an impression that probably everybody right. there. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. That's what they said. And it's, it's also just really interesting that Rudyard Kipling happened to be, yeah. you know. And I wonder how... what the artist, like, what the paint producer in in that exchange like what was said on that side like i want to know what that conversation was like hey is there mummy in this shit hell yeah there's (laughs) mummy in this shit (laughs) like did he like punch him and take the body right (laughs) i mean clearly not but but it would have only been like five pounds right Oh, my goodness. Well, less if some had already been put in paint, technically. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Huh. Well, that at least restores some faith in humanity, even if it is just burying a tube of brown paint. You know, it's... We we can... We look for the little little things, little spots of light. Yes. Yes, that is true. Uh, so do we want to move on to the weekly worst way to die? <laughs> yes. So my weekly worst way to die is yes. basically 
in par of theme. Mm. Um, have you seen the movie Young Sherlock Holmes? I don't think so. It's from 1985, oh. and it is delightful. Hold on, I also, gotta look it up. <laughs> most definitely problematic. Um, the entire thing um, involves an Egyptian cult. And uh, there is, uh, in fact... Oh, wait, I've seen this. The cult is named Ramitep. Yeah. And so my worst way to die would be their sacrifice, where they're basically mummified alive. The virgin, which I no longer qualify for, was uh, wrapped up in linen. I mean, I should say not. You have multiple children. (laughs) I do, I do. Uh, Then all the, the, the hot resin gets poured out of this thing, and basically they're like, burned alive in hot resin and probably so they didn't study their history right like it's it's completely problematic from i'm sure there's very many racist things in there now at the time i was young and did not know any better well um but it stuck it stuck in my head movies are their special brand of problematic favorites yeah they are so so that's my yeah so uh rami tep sacrifice that's that's my worst way to die for this week. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's not fine. Um, also, in keeping with the uh, current subject, um, well, finding mummies, at least mummies of royalty and such, there were decoy doors and entrances to tombs that would just yeah. lead to, to traps. Um, and my worst way to die would be getting stuck in one of those decoy traps and realizing it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yep. Although I, I am momentarily picturing old white European men trying to steal bodies and getting stuck in those, and that doesn't make sense. They weren't going in there. They were hiring locals. Ugh, that's right, slave labor. They're awful. God damn it. They're horrible. Yeah, but anyway, I think that would be a terrible way to die, and also I would deserve it. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, but there are lots of, like, sheer cliffs that you can't see and things that close behind you and crush you, and there's lots going on there. I'm just... Picturing the Goonies now. Pretty much. <laughs> oh, now I want to watch the Goonies. So good. Yeah. All right. So that's, that is a way that I would not like to die. Um, Agreed. Yes. On that note, do you guys want to be our spooky internet friends? You know you do. You can find, yeah, you can find us on, at Bobbins and Bobbins on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Yep. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast because it pleases the internet gremlins and that's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us. And you can probably break the after midnight rule (laughs) just this once. Yep. Just this once. Uh Although you may not want to get it wet. Yeah. Don't do that. Right. Along that note... We're going to leave you with some more advice that you should absolutely never forget. And that's lock your doors. 
and don't run with scissors. Yay! Yeah. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.